0: Well this evening we get to re-engage with a sermon series that we started a, a couple months ago um, called Stranger Things in the Bible. And the whole idea of this series is that a couple years ago our teenagers wa- spent the better part of a year walking through the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what uh, we often call the Old Testament. It makes up two-thirds of the book of, uh, of the Bible and it is mostly taking place thousands and thousands of years ago in a time, culture, and language that is extremely foreign to 21st century Bellingham. And it's just weird. But within the weirdness of that context, there are some particularly strange concepts and sometimes disturbing stories. And so the kids put together a list because I asked them, I thought this would be a fun sermon series. What were some of the big questions that you had based on your year in the Hebrew Scriptures? And we have enough material to probably do, um, well, I'll I'll be revisiting this sermon series over the the next few years. There's a lot of material. Uh, But the question that they had that we're going to address this evening is this. How did the world grow so quickly from just Adam and Eve? Where did the people come from who Adam and Eve's kids had kids with? Okay, so that's, that's where we're going to go. I'm going to open us in prayer, because we're going to get in it. We're going to get in the weeds. All right, so Lord, thank you for your word, as weird as it is, and sometimes um, just head-scratchingly hard to get our minds around. We thank you, Lord, for um, the way your word has been preserved over these many thousands of years, We thank you for the scholarship that's gone into archeology span and language study and culture studies and faithful men and women who over the years have looked long and deep uh, into these subjects and people that we can draw from and learn from. And Lord, thank you for uh, our youth, for our teenagers who ask really good questions um, and questions that I know many of us have as well. Help us to open our minds and open our hearts to hear what might be a familiar text in a new way. Amen. So, Adam and Eve, beginning of human beings, all of this stuff. If you're not familiar with the story, let's just do a little refresher. There's three main texts that the questions our teenagers pose, that where they come from. And the first one is just in the very beginning of Genesis. And feel free if you've got your Bible, you wanna follow along. Um, we're in Genesis 1:26 and 27. Um, and it goes like this. Then God said, let us make man or humans in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man, humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, this is the first account in all of scripture of human beings. And right from the get-go, we see the immense value, uh, not that humans have because they're human, but that humans have because God granted them the special place of being made in his image, In other words, we're not special because of our species, like, oh, we have opposable thumbs, and that's cool, and we're better, we're like higher mammals or something like that. Um, If if you lost your thumbs in some horrible accident, you would still be special because you're not special because of your species, you're special because God said, human beings, I'm granting you my image. You are made in my image. Okay. Now, this is vital because it means that whether you're a man or a woman... Whether you're able body or you're ill, whether you're old or young or light-skinned or dark-skinned, whether you're from the north or the south or the east or the west, you are made in God's image because he designates human beings as his image bearers. Bearing his image has nothing to do with your ability or your performance or your intelligence. It is a gift that all human beings bear equally. And if that's all you got out of today's message, that's a lot, that's really good news because that has so many implications for our ethics and how we treat one another and how we look at other people in the world, okay. The next passage, so let me just be clear here. Genesis one, that passage we just read about the creation of human beings and them bearing his image, Genesis one has zero things to say about Adam and Eve, specifically. In fact, it says nothing about how or when human beings came into existence. The objective of Genesis 1 is not to tell us how we came to be, but who we are in God, what purpose we are here for, and that purpose is to be, to use like royal language, to be God's vice regents, his glorious image bearers that bear his image and his quality to each other and to the rest of the world. Okay, so that's what Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in a nutshell, is telling us. Okay, the next passage that uh, our kids were likely looking at is Genesis 2, 4 through 8, and 18 through 25, and it goes like this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. Now, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed." Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone and I will make a helper suitable for him. And he made all these animals and I'm just trying to cut time because it's a long passage. And then he says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman uh, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Here we have what appears to be the creation of a human man from dust, which is interesting, and then a woman created from dust a bone in his side of his body. Okay. Now, if we go back to the original question, how did the world grow so quickly from just Adam and Eve? Well, we immediately recognize in that question that there is an assumption in the question. And the assumption is that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. But is that what the Bible actually says, that they were the first human beings? hold that thought. To add another element of complexity, we jump to Genesis 4, where Adam and Eve have children, and their children go out. Well, one murders another in a the dysfunctional family from the get-go, and, uh, and, and they, but then they have more kids, and these kids marry people, right? They, they get married, they have families. So are they, like, where do these people come from? Are they marrying their their siblings, which is kind of ooh, um, are there other humanoids out there besides Adam and Eve and their line of people that they're marrying? Cain goes out and he builds a city, Im- implying that there's numerous people, right? You don't build a city for like one person or, or a, new, a newlywed couple, right? Um, in Hebrew, the word for city means a fortified, walled community. So there's enough people out there to form a city community, but. If you have to have a wall to guard your community, it must mean that there's also other communities from whom you need to guard yourself from, okay? So the implication is that there's lots and lots and lots of people out there um, that you need a walled city. So it begs the question, like, where are these folks coming from? If you are here this evening and you're like, I've never read the Bible before, you might think that some of our problems with this text just don't make any sense. And I'm happy for you because a lot of us have grown up from traditions where we were taught to read the Bible in a certain way. And we were taught if you didn't read it in a certain way that you maybe weren't faithful or maybe you didn't trust the Bible or maybe you didn't trust God. For many people the book of Genesis and the origins of human beings have posed some insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable roadblocks. On the one hand, many people interpret Genesis as saying that God created everything from nothing in a really short timetable. That he created out of of nothing everything that exists that he created human beings without any sort of ancestors and that Adam and Eve were the first humans from whom everyone is related. And that's just what we were taught and that's the way you see it and that's the way you read it. And I look out into this community and that might describe where a lot of you were raised or what you think and maybe you've, and I and I look. I also look out here and I see uh, a couple PhDs in biology, I see medical doctors, I see engineers, um, uh, teachers, um, I see smart people with scientific degrees who somehow hold all of that intention. So on the one hand, maybe we've been taught we read Genesis as a literal fast creation, Adam and Eve, first people, everyone's related to them. On the other hand, discoveries in archaeology, anthropology, biology, and genetics all seem to point to, at least the evidence that we have now, seem to point to a very old earth. Furthermore, the human genome appears very old and extremely connected to the material origins of the great apes and other primates. Now based on these two seemingly opposing starting points, people either say, if I take the Bible seriously, then I need to sort of close my eyes and reject the fossil record and the evidence of genetics, or they say, if I take science seriously, then the Bible can't be trusted. It must be a myth, it must be some weird you know, thing to just make us uh, be better people, but it can't mean anything historical. Now these are, of course, two very extreme views that very few people actually sit on those poles. And there are many, many views in between that usually require some sort of pseudoscience like answers in genesis type stuff like you know just like let's try and make this work or pseudo adherence to scripture but rarely do those polls like satisfy real scrutiny so what are we to do? How do we interpret the evidence? Is there a way to take seriously both the scriptures and the empirical evidence revealed through scientific discovery? Like, is that a thing we can do? And I'm just so happy to share that, yes, I think it is a thing we can do. And maybe you're like, I've always wanted to know how to do that, but ah, it just seems like there's these poles and they're insurmountable. You know, and it's just an aside, like it is from... Judaism and Christianity that emerges the foundation from which we can even get the natural sciences. You know, like Greek thought, the real wasn't physical. The real was somewhere else, that this is just a reflection of the real. Greek thinking does not lead, Greek philosophy doesn't lead necessarily to to the hard sciences, to observation. Christianity, Judaism, these earthly faiths of a God who creates physical things and calls them good, that leads to science. Being anti-intellectual, anti-thinking, anti evidence is not compatible with the God who makes things and makes us with brains. That's, I just want to say that you can be smart and inquisitive and faithful at the same time. So how can we square the Bible with empirical evidence? I, I believe, this is kind of a mantra of mine so it won't surprise you that I'll use the word humility, I think humility is important. Humility that our science is ever a work in process. Our science can offer us empirical observations, but not reasons. Um, in other words, science can help us describe what happened and what happens, but not why things happen. Okay? And we need humility when approaching the scriptures. You know, it is telling that the supposed conflict between Bible and science is a particularly American thing that was really formed in the early 20th century that isn't as big of a deal in the UK or in Australia or in many places in the developing world. That's a uniquely American issue that we had, and that's where most of us have grown up and, and learned to think, okay? So we need to have a little bit of humility as we approach the Scriptures And I think part of the problem is how we have been taught to interpret Genesis. Our biggest roadblock comes from the word that we translate as create, created, creation, this word, okay? Um, As modern Westerners, right, which I'm, I'm lumping us all in that category, when we think of creation, we typically think of the origins of the universe or the origins of the terra firma, of the planet Earth that we're on, we typically think of, okay, Genesis 1 is talking about a void of blackness where however you can imagine nothingness, maybe space with nothing in it, and from that space, Genesis 1 is somehow talking about the creation of, of all things. We typically think that way, that creation created and create, that that word means to, to make something out of nothing. And so when we get to Adam and Eve, we imagine there being nothing but dust, and then God takes that dust and forms a human out of it, and of course, if we understand Scripture in that way, then Adam and Eve must be the first people, and all people must be genetically tied to them, and their children must have intermarried, and on it goes. Once we're tied to that definition of creation and create, then we're tied to that course of action because of our interpretation of what that word means. The main problem with that interpretation is that it would have never crossed the minds of the biblical authors or their original audience to have read that word that way. The Hebrew word bara occurs about 50 times in the Hebrew Bible, in the NIV, in the New American Standard that I just read from, it, it, it translated as create, bara, as create. 50 times it's used in the Hebrew Bible. It has a wide range of meaning, and most importantly for our text is that it usually speaks of creating order or creating function rather than creating material things. So John Walton, who I'm drawing a lot from in this, in this sermon, um, he speaks of, a, like, imagine a house, And you have a bedroom. Uh, A lot of empty nesters know this story. Like you had a child and they went away to college. And so now you create out of that bedroom a a workout room, right? Or a den. But nobody thinks like you completely tore it down and you created it from scratch and you grew trees and then you cut them down and made boards. I mean, only Nathaniel would do that because he's awesome. But like, no, we, we say we created a den or we created a workout room out of what was already there. We just reordered it. We made it functional for our purposes. That's how borah in the Hebrew Bible is most often used. Now that's interesting. There's another Hebrew word that's interesting that we often translate as make, so the God made or formed the man out of the dust. Uh, It's asah. You wanna just say that so you don't fall asleep? Asah, okay, It's a Hebrew word, occurs 2,600 times, and we find an even wider range of meaning, and it usually means to do, to prepare or to provide. So like when God made the lights in the sky in Genesis one, he prepared them, he provided them. In the ancient world, people thought that the world, like the earth and all the stuff on it, existed long before human beings and that it was in a state of chaos or disorder. I mean, you'd be an ancient person, you look at the sea and it's scary and there's earthquakes and volcanoes and you think, ooh, it's chaos out there. Um, And to create within that worldview was not to create the physical earth and the sea and the stars, but it was to order them so that they're inhabitable, functional, useful for their intended purpose. Now that sounds like a very strange and foreign concept at least for how we might think of the words create and creation, but it really isn't. It's only weird for us if we've been taught to, to think of Genesis in a particular way. You know why it's not weird? Because we use create in that way all the time. Let me give you an example. You set out to create a batch of cookies, for example. What are you doing? You're ordering, proportioning flour, butter, and eggs, and of course chocolate chips because those are the best. A little peanut butter in there, maybe some vanilla. Okay, so you prepare the oven. You set the times for the season of cooking, right? And if we're, if we're to use Genesis language, we could write, in the beginning Chris created cookies. He made flour, uh, he made the flour, sugar, and butter and separated them into their portions. He then set the oven in its season. He brought forth the cookies from the dust and the flour and declared them very good. I'm making myself hungry. Now here's why this works. The word for beginning in Genesis, in the beginning God, dot, 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 right? Genesis 1, 1. The word for beginning in Genesis can literally be translated as inauguration or inaugural period. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the creation, or the beginning of the universe, it's the beginning of this season, of this age, of this, this now inhabited place. So I could just be the beginning period in which I make the cookies, or the period in which God ordered the chaos, or the void as it were, into a living ecosystem. So if we continue with my cookie analogy and use this wider range of meaning for those words for create and made, I might say, in the inaugural period of cookies, Chris ordered the ingredients and prepared them in their proper proportions. And behold, chocolate chip cookies came forth and he saw that they were good. I know, right? I used that silly cookie example to show you how those words would have been heard by a Hebrew-speaking ancient person with a different worldview than we have. I'm not trying to convince you that that's how you have to read Genesis. I'm simply saying that that option would have made more sense to the authors and the first readers than than what often we think about when we think of creation. So when we talk about making cookies, in this analogy, no one is imagining that when I say I'm ordering flour and butter and sugar and things, no, you're not imagining like, oh, Chris must have invented a cow ex nihilo out of nothing, right, and then figured out how to milk that cow, and no one is imagining that I've created chickens and then got the egg, and what came first, the chicken, you <laughs> uh, you're assuming that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with ingredients that already exist, And then I'm ordering them. And actually, when those ingredients, if they're just sitting out on the counter without me ordering them and mixing them so and baking them, you know, it's chaos because they're they're fodder for bacteria and they will decompose and they will stink. And so that really is ordering chaos into something usable, constructive, and tasty. I like that example. Let me pause to say this in case you're squirming and you're like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I believe that the Bible says that God created the physical universe out of nothing. Colossians 1, for example, is a wonderful text from which we get the idea that God, um, it is through God, through Christ Christ, through whom all things are made, all things are dependent on him. There's deep theological thought that if Christ were to simply not want to hold things together, that our atoms would fly out of control, that that order itself, that the molecules of the the chairs that you are sitting on would dissolve, that Christ is holding all things together, all things were made through him and for him. We get that from Colossians 1 and some other texts in the New Testament. But what I am equally saying is that Genesis one and two are not texts that deal with the origins of the universe. Okay, so the Bible talks about God being the author of the origin of the universe. That is a important theological stance that we we have as followers of God, but Genesis one and two aren't necessarily making that case. In Genesis one and two, we see the story of God ordering materials that already exist. Again, he created at some previous time, but Genesis one and two are telling us a story about how humans came to be his image bearers, and he's ordered the the raw materials that he created previously into a functional place for us to be. That's what Genesis one and two are getting on about. Now it's extremely important that we have that background as we move into Genesis 2, and the part about Adam and Eve, all right? Because let's face it, at at face value, it appears as though Genesis 2 is another creation story. Um, Let me read the first part of it again, just in case you had questions about that. Now, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. As we're learning, taking things at face value from a 21st century perspective might not help us see the face value of the biblical authors and their original audience. So rather than looking at that sentence with our 21st century's glasses on, I suggest we put on some new lenses. And the first lens that I want us to put on is the one we've encountered just previously. It is the meaning of the word baraf or create. Um, which, remember, means order or to make functional. And so through that lens, the sentence would read like this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were ordered in the day that the Lord God brought order to the earth and to the heaven, or the earth and the sky. Now let me introduce a second lens. When Genesis says, Genesis 2-4 says, now this is the account of, It is translating one Hebrew word. This is the account of is the Hebrew word toldot. You can say it, stay awake with me, toldot. This is the account of. This is the account of. And that word has a function. The basic meaning is these are the generations of, or this is the story, or basically it's saying this is the sequel, to what just came before. It's a technical term in Genesis, and it's used 10 times, 10 other times in Genesis, and each time we see it in Genesis, it signals a new part to the story based on what had just come before. So what that means is that Genesis 2 is not a retelling of Genesis 1, but it's a scene in the narrative building on what had just come before. So it speaks about the plants, but weren't the plants already made in Genesis 1? It's not that they weren't there in Genesis 2, but now they're cultivated crops. Genesis 2 talks about a specific garden in a specific part of the world, And in terms of people, the ones later named Adam and Eve, which, by the way, are Hebrew names. I'm pretty sure they didn't speak Hebrew at the origins of the world, right? Like, that wasn't even a culture for thousands and thousands of years. So, um, Adam and Eve. um, (laughs) Where are we at here? (laughs) We aren't to think by this reading that they're the first people ever to have existed, but two specific people of the many that were spoken of in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So let's take stock of where we're at because we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about Barah and Asa and Toldat and making cookies and all of this stuff. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us a lot about the God who brings order to the chaos, who grants special status to human beings as his image bearers, And he gives special vocation to human beings of rightly ordering creation. We bear the image of God by reflecting his goodness and his creativity and his love and his wisdom and his grace to one another and to the created order. And we haven't done a very good job of that over the course of human history, but that's still the job. That's still the job. And most of us, or I'm sorry, most of all, we are all invited into a living and intimate relationship with God. We get that from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us very little or nothing about science. If they tell us anything about science, it's not intentional. They're not scientific uh, textbooks. Genetics wasn't even a thing we thought of until 100 years ago. The human genome wasn't even mapped until about 20 or 30 years ago. It's just non-existent in the, in the worldview of Genesis, right? It doesn't tell us anything about science or how the world was created or the methods that God used to bring about human life. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God made humans and that there's a special focus on two humans, the Ish and the Isha, in Hebrew, a man and woman. And it later gives them the Hebrew names Adam and Eve. Earth man, daughter of life, or beginning of life. Now we started this sermon with a two-part question. How did the world grow so quickly from just Adam and Eve, and where did the people come from who Adam and Eve, their kids married, right? And I think in a significant way, this reading of Genesis offers us viable answers to both those questions. How did the world population grow so quickly after Adam and Eve? Well, it didn't necessarily start with Adam and Eve. If we don't have to believe that they were the first two people, there's nothing in our theology, there's nothing with Jesus, there's nothing down the line that's affected if we don't see them as the first two people of the human species. And so if you don't have to believe that, if, we, if the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, then it's easy to see that there were humans created. Adam and Eve were two specific humans that we hear about in Genesis 2, and there's all these other ones that they could have intermarried with. Every human is made in the image of God. So they have people to marry. So that sort of is, is, is a satisfying solution to that question. Where did, who did they marry? Well, there's lots of other people. So if the Bible suggests that there were humans before Adam and Eve... Then that answers the second part of the question. Adam and Eve's kids likely married these other human beings who are outside their family line, right? So I guess what I want you to hear in this little pause is that the Bible is not at odds with scientific discovery. That there are certain interpretations of Genesis that are at odds with the fossil record and genetics um, but such interpretations, while it's fine if you have those, that's fine, but I just want to say that you don't have to have those to be a faithful follower of Jesus or someone who really respects Scripture, like I clearly do. I've devoted my life to exegeting Scripture and preaching it. Like I, This is the living Word of God. And at the same time, I want you to hear that science is not at odds with a God who's responsible for the creation of the universe and the ordering of ecosystems and the honoring of human beings. There is nothing at the Bible at odds with an old earth or evolutionary process. You may agree or disagree with certain scientific theories, and again, that's fine. Like Our faith isn't based on on that kind of stuff. But the Bible and scientific method are doing completely different tasks. They're not even in conversation with one another. And so, it's okay to hold those things in tension. That's incredibly freeing. But it still leaves us with the question about Adam and Eve. Like, it sure seems like Genesis 2 describes the origin of these two humans, and it describes at that origin at at least at face value that it sounds like adam and eve didn't have parents like like okay let's say that god created all these humans in genesis 1 that's fine it sure seems like genesis 2 is saying here are these two people one dude is made out of dirt and then the other lady is made out of a rib from his side like what do we do with that so i kind of wanted to that wasn't one of the kids questions but i thought that's intriguing like let's go there can we go there just are you guys done should we go? Okay, okay, let's do that. So there's three, there's three main theories about how to look at Adam and Eve based on Genesis 2. And the first theory is that Adam and Eve are not actual historical figures, but they're characters in a story designed to tell us how sin entered the world and then what God's gonna do about it. And over the centuries, this theory has come in and out of favor and it seems like it solves a lot of those pesky problems like being made out of dirt and being made out of a person's rib and talking snakes. And like, if we all just chalk it up to like, hey, maybe this wasn't historical, but the figurative, then it sort of like checks all the boxes. Like, oh, we don't have to worry about all that weird stuff. Sorry if you were like, oh, good. That sounds like, like a, I, I just don't think it sticks. And here's why. The main problem with the theory that Adam and Eve are metaphorical characters rather than real people, is that they're just not presented that way. They're just not. Like, there's nothing in the narratives to suggest that Genesis 2 is poetic, or a parable, or some other literary device other than history. If anything, Genesis 1 is the poetic verse. Genesis 1 is extremely stylized. Lots of people posit that Genesis 1 is a song. And you can start to find all kinds of crazy, like, the, the, the way that seven is used in Genesis, it, it is clearly, Genesis one is clearly stylized, like it is, it, it's in verse. Genesis two isn't like that. Um, but by far the most conclusive evidence against the, the idea that Adam and Eve are somehow fictional characters is the fact that Adam and Eve are in numerous biblical genealogies. I don't have time to break the importance of genealogies down to you, but know this, in all of Hebrew literature, in all the genealogies that we know of from the ancient Near East, which is a growing and growing catalog as archeologists find more writings from the ancient Near East, there are zero, zero genealogies that include gods, goddesses, angels, mythological characters, or fictitious literary characters, zero because genealogies were so important to telling about where a family comes from and where they're going and who you're connected to, it was just inconceivable to put someone in there who's not real. And the fact that Adam and Eve are in genealogies, including Jesus's genealogy, suggests that they were true historical figures. Again, none of these theories or a litmus test for whether or not you can follow Jesus. You can think that if you want it, that they're fictitious people. I'll just argue against it, but like we can still like, be friends and take communion and follow Jesus together. Like Your faith in Christ is not at all based on these theories. Hear that? Okay, so I just don't think that Adam and Eve being fictitious stands up to scrutiny. That's my opinion. The second theory suggests that Adam and Eve were created after other humans, so that they're not the first humans, but they're created out of nothing. That is, they're created without parents. And in that sense, they're the ancestors of all. Um, meaning, they're genealogical ancestors of all. Did you know that within 200 to 400 generations, all the genetic material is, is spliced up and lost? So like if Cory and I have Sophia, if, she has kids and has kids and has kids. Within uh, 300 to 400 years, you couldn't tell that I was part of that family from my genes. It's just split and and muddled and, and, and gone. But you can Genealogically. And that's how the Bible talks. The Bible knows nothing about genetics. The, the Bible is all into genealogy. And, and science has shown, uh, Joshua Swamidis' um, new research has shown that within six to 10,000 years, conceivably, every human being alive today could be connected to two people. So the theory stands scientifically and theologically that that could be a thing. So the second theory, let me just say it again, is that Adam and Eve were created after other humans, there's other, other humans alive, but that God created them out of, like they don't have parents, like Anakin Skywalker, I guess. Well, he had a mom, but like, yeah. Um, sorry, that was a really bad analogy, but, because um, <laughs> now we're getting to the prequels and wah, wah. Okay, anyway. Let me just, let me just suck it in here. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the theory is sound that Adam and Eve could be the progenitors of of everyone today, some connection to them, Um, and it allows for other humans to be in existence besides Adam and Eve, but it sets this special couple apart, okay? Um, So that's the second theory, and a lot of people hold to that theory, and it's a really viable one that you might want to consider and process, okay? The third theory is that Adam and Eve exist as real people, we're chosen by God out from other human beings to represent all of humanity, and in this theory again, we put on our ancient Near Eastern reading glasses and we notice that God created Adam out of dust, and, you know, a lot of times we read that and we think, well, I've read that a million times and it's in the Bible and the Bible's weird, so I guess, so I guess He made him out of dust, but that's weird even for the Bible. Um, like God usually doesn't make people out of dust. And it's not because God can't do miracles. I mean, God does. All, Jesus turns water to wine, and we the parting the Red Sea. All, all, people are raised from the dead. That's weird. But making a person out of dust, like is there? Is that it's like David has pumpkins. Is that from something? Like I get, like you know, I get creation and I get ordering of stuff. But like making a dude out of dirt. What, what is that? Is that from something? No, it's, it's not from something. It's just so weird to, to think about. Um, and, and I don't think it would have made sense to an original reader either because dust is a symbol of death and it's used in that way lots of other places in scripture. In Genesis 2 then, what, what could be going on is that we get an image-bearing human who God is making the point of humans are mortal. Humans die. And where does he put Adam and eventually Eve? In a garden where he dwells and there's a tree of life that grants them life that they need because humans are made of dust. On Ash Wednesday, what do we say when we do the ashes on our head? From dust you have come and to dust you shall return. Repent and trust in the good news. That's because dust is a symbol of death. Here's another interesting one. It says that then, he's, so Adam's created, and then God makes a deep sleep to come upon him. Now, for a God who can like create stuff out of nothing, it's just kind of weird that he would take a rib bone from a person? And like, make a deep sleep fall on Adam? What is that? Some kind of ancient anesthesia? And then like, he takes, I don't know if he carves it, like he whittles it. I don't know what he does. But he, he takes the bone and he creates the woman. Is this kind of like, is that really? To, are we thinking like, that? I guess, is that how he, is that how he made the, the woman? But here's an interesting thing. In the word uh, describing the deep sleep on Adam, it's used another time in, in Genesis. And in Genesis 15, There's this amazing story of Abraham who's kind of down and God takes him out of his tent and he says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the sky. And you see all the stars, right? There's no, no light pollution in the day. And he says, see all those stars. He says, your descendants are gonna be like that. And then what happened to Abraham? Anyone remember? The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, just like this in Adam. And you know what happened in that deep sleep? He had a vision. Not a real event, but a vision. And like he had these carcasses that were split in half. The rib is translated as half, like a side of beef. It's not really a bone. It's translated as half. So you've got these sides of halves of animals on either side and a pillar of smoke and fire, like God in the Exodus, right, um, goes through and, and and. and God promises to be faithful to Abraham and to human beings even if they're not faithful. That's a whole other sermon. I love it. Okay, but my, my point is that the deep sleep thing occurs to people when God gives them a vision. And so what if God gave Adam a vision? It wasn't ancient anesthesia to create a rib and like whittle a woman out of it, but he gives Adam a vision, this man who is dependent on God because he's made out of dust, he's dependent on God for life, and then he says, you know this woman, this female She's not just a, an object like the other ancient Near Eastern cultures were saying. She's not a slave, she's not a lesser. She's half of you. She's part of you, she's one of you. And you're to treat her, with that, that's, that's, the, that's what the vision is revealing in this theory number three. The woman is taken from the half She's the same. She has the same dignity and worth and value, an utterly foreign concept to ancient peoples, and yet from the very beginning, we are to understand that God sees men and women as equal, and by this interpretation, Adam and Eve are not created out of nothing, but they're chosen out of the many, just as God chose Noah and his family to save the world, just as God chose Abraham and Sarah out of the many to bless the world for the, for the sake of God's glory. Just as God chose Israel out of the many nations. Just as God chose David, the youngest brother of many sons. Just as Paul says that Jesus was chosen and sent to represent all human beings. So God chose Adam and Eve to bless in a special way so that they might know him and trust him and create a community through their line, through their lineage, to do the same thing for the world, that the world might know God through them. And through betrayal of that blessing, sin entered into the project of God in a significant way. And here it is that we see the significance of Jesus through a new lens, we often think of Jesus as coming and dying and being raised out of death to save you and to save me, to offer forgiveness to you and me and new life as individuals, and thanks be to God that that is true. Yeah, but what a thoughtful and robust understanding of Adam and Eve gives us is more than just individual salvation. As sin and corruption enter the world through our representative Adam, so Jesus from the line of David who represents Israel from the tribe of Abraham thanks to Noah because of the fall of Adam. Jesus undoes death and chaos. Jesus brings the promise of order and beauty and new creation, Barah and Asah. And, and he brings the promise of a new and functioning world with, a new, with new and functioning hearts to live in that world. And that, my friends, is very good news, right from weird Stranger Things stories in the Bible. Lord, thank you. Thank you for, um, thank you for your word preserved for us. Thank you for the truth that is there. Thank you that our salvation is not tied to us perfectly understanding ancient peoples ancient languages strange concepts and I pray Lord that more than confusion today that you would grant my sisters and brothers and I peace and an ability to to see more than one way to honor you and to follow you, and to trust you. Bless you, Lord Jesus, for undoing what was done so long ago, for choosing to work in and through us. Amen. I want to hit you up with a couple resources that Zoe's going to or uh, I think he's going to put on there. Okay, so this is a book that if you're interested in the stuff we've been talking about, it's very accessible. Uh, the Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton. A lot of the concepts that we talked about tonight, um, if you're like, what were all those words that Chris used? Um, a lot of that's going to be in this book, uh, and it's in real nice digestible chapters. Nothing's too I don't think over-the-top technical, so that would be a good one to look at. The next book for m- maybe a little more science nerdy people. This one actually is kind of thick and hard to get through, um, but it's really interesting. So this is um, uh, Joshua Sw- uh, Swimidas, and it's the genealogical Adam and Eve. So this guy is a um, uh, an analytical biologist. He um, uh, he's in like a think tank, and he's also a medical doctor. Uh, and he's, he's a scientist, and he's also a, a Christian, and so he has just seen those polls that I described of either you read the Bible literally, or you're not faithful, or you take science seriously, and the Bible's stupid. Uh, he, he, he's like, I am a, like, a, he's a brilliant scientist, and he's a faithful Bible loving follower of Jesus and he said, I don't know that there's so much tension there. So he's the one who his research shows uh, that all people could come from two people, theoretically, scientifically, in six to 10,000 years, which is just fascinating. Um, and I think it just opens up conversation. He doesn't come out on like, you should think this way, you should think that way, which I also love um, because I like people to think and to um, to try on different hats and and, and try it out. So. If you're hungry for the more technical stuff, this would be a good one. And then also, um, The Bible Project, which I've talked about a lot. The Bible Project, it's a free website, there's free podcasts, there's free little videos on every book of the Bible. These concepts, they have hours and hours of podcasts, but there's one particular podcast where it's The Bible Project guys interviewing Joshua Swimidas on that book, and it's about an hour long, you're like, I'm probably not gonna read that book, Chris, but I could listen to an interview. it's fascinating, and it will wet your palate for all that kind of stuff. So I offer that up as, as, um, uh, as recognizing that we are all in process. There's, there's more than we could possibly learn in a lifetime about the Bible and about faith. Um, I also just want to say, if you're intrigued and you want to talk more, hit me up. If you're troubled and you want to talk more, hit me up. Um, again, I, I'll just say your faith in Christ is not tied to where you come out on thinking about Genesis and science and Adam and Eve. I just wanted to offer you some different ways to think about it, Um, so there's that.